welcome to the PLP podcast. I'm joined today by Howard Elgott, a colleague from Park Lane Plowden. We are here to discuss mental capacity in litigation and to provide a practical guide. This is a very important topic as mental capacity can come into any case and every practitioner needs to be ready for it. Howard almost needs no introduction. Howard is exceptionally highly rated within the legal directories and has a formidable practice. He has been leading and junior counsel in a large number of cases in the Supreme Court, House of Lords, Court of Appeal and High Court. Howard, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. And how are you, Stuart? I'm very well. You have had an incredible career, Howard, at the bar so far. And do you know roughly how many times you have appeared in the Supreme Court, House of Lords and Court of Appeal? Well, I've been in the Supreme Court once as leading counsel. I've been in the House of Lords twice as junior counsel. And I've been in the Court of Appeal about 20, 25 times. And are there any secrets to your success that you can share on the podcast? Well, I think it's always helpful if, uh, if counsel reads all the papers. Um, uh, over the years, I, I've been against one or two people who perhaps hadn't. Um, and generally knowing the law and knowing, uh, knowing civil procedure. If we move now to mental capacity, this is another area where you've been involved in a number of the leading cases. I have, and we'll come on to those later on, I think. So the purpose of today is to seek to provide practitioners with a practical guide. Uh, It's November 2023 at the time of recording, and there is recent Law Society guidance that we can start with. It's entitled Working with Clients Who May Lack Mental Capacity, and it's available on the internet. It says on the Law Society website that it takes less than one minute to read, but is that correct, Howard? I think you'd have to be a very fast reader. And it is a very helpful guide which is available on the internet. It does set out as to the, the different aspects of considering capacity, which obviously part of that is to look at what it gives in the Law Society guidance, individual items when capacity might be relevant because this is transactional and decision-specific consideration that we have to make as to capacity. So what are the key principles, Howard, under the Mental Capacity Act 2005? Section 1 of the Mental Capacity Act says the following principles apply for the purposes of this Act. And 1-2 says a person must be assumed to have capacity unless it is established that he lacks capacity. 3. A person is not to be treated as unable to make a decision unless all practicable steps to help him to do so have been taken without success. Now, the presumption of capacity is very much misunderstood, sometimes even by doctors. Like most presumptions of law, the presumption is subject to evidence to the contrary. And I think most doctors don't really grasp that. And Section 2 provides the definition of those people that lack capacity under the Act. It does. So Section 2.1 says a person lacks capacity in relation to a matter if at the material time he's unable to make a decision for himself in relation to the matter, and here's the important part, because of an impairment of or a disturbance in the functioning of the mind or brain 
So it doesn't matter, says the Act, whether the impairment uh, uh, or disturbance is permanent or temporary. So in other words, you, you can have a temporary loss of capacity. And 2.4 uh, uh, again repeats um, that um, in proceedings under this Act or any other enactment, any question whether a person lacks capacity within the meaning of the Act must be decided on a balance of probabilities. It goes on within Section 2 to set out that a lack of capacity cannot be established merely by reference to a person's age or appearance. And also what we have to look at here is the specific legal test and it's not merely about someone's age, appearance, condition or an aspect of their behaviour or whether or not there is a, a previous diagnosis or condition, which in our practical approach that we have to take here, obviously the focus, Howard, needs to be on the legal test. It does. In, in other words, just by looking at somebody, you can't make a decision. And Section 3 of the Mental Capacity Act 2005 then deals with the inability to make decisions. So how is this defined? Well, th this is really at the core of, of the Mental Capacity Act. So for the purposes of Section 2, the Act says, a person is unable to make a decision for himself if he's unable, A, to understand the information relevant to the decision. That's, I think, easy to understand. If your client can't understand the information relevant to the decision, then your client doesn't have legal capacity. There's a problem, of course, because most of the information relative to complex decisions in, 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 in any litigation is information that can only really be understood by lawyers. That would make everybody, of course, um, unable to, to make decisions within the Act. And therefore, it would suggest that everybody who hasn't got a law degree doesn't have uh, litigation capacity. Now, the truth is that a, a realistic approach has to be taken to this. But, but on, the plain, on the plain wording... It's really quite difficult. So you've basically got to take the plain wording with a pinch of salt in relation to 3.1a. Also, a person has no legal capacity if he's unable to retain that information. C, a person has no legal capacity if they're unable to use or weigh that information as part of the process of making the decision. And D... There's no capacity if a person cannot communicate his decision, whether by talking, using sign language or any other means. And, and indeed, I, I have a case at the moment where it is thought that, that my client is able to understand, but unfortunately he isn't able to communicate. It's very difficult. Would it be right to say, when we're looking at 3.1a, that clearly on the plain language that's contained there that that test is going to be hard for anyone to meet but what we're looking at for capacity is something more profound it has to be at a threshold which which represents an, an inability to to actually make decisions as the section title indicates that's 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 absolutely right the truth is that common sense comes into this quite a quite a lot but the, the problem is that unless you 
unless you got a thorough understanding of the first few sections of the Mental Capacity Act, and then step back from it, maybe look at some of the cases to see what this means in practice, it, it, is, it is very, very difficult. And then if we go on within Section 3, it sets out at Section 3.2 that a person is not to be regarded as unable to understand the information relevant to a decision if he is able to understand an explanation of it given to him in a way that is appropriate to his circumstances using simple language, visual aids or any other means. So that's, I suppose, indicating some form of baseline as to what's then set out in the rest of Section 3 as to understanding what an inability to make decisions means? That's, that's absolutely correct. And it therefore demands quite a high level of skill from the lawyer who, who is actually dealing with a client who may be on the borderline between having capacity and not. Okay, so what does this all mean for litigation capacity? If I am representing a party and I am starting to think about whether they have litigation capacity, and it is this borderline case as you're describing, Howard, where should I first look for guidance? The Law Society guidance itself says that the key question is set out in the judgment of Lord Justice Chadwick in a case called Masterman Lister versus Brutton. That, that's a case that goes back to 2003. And the, the, the question posed by Lord Justice Chadwick is as follows. It's whether a party to legal proceedings is capable of understanding with the assistance of such proper explanation, brackets, in broad terms and simple language, brackets, from legal advisers and other experts, as the case may require, the matters on which their consent or decision was likely to be necessary in the course of those proceedings. And that test applies to the proceedings as a whole. So we have to judge as to whether or not a litigant has capacity to make all the decisions that are involved within the proceedings and not simply in relation to any individual decision that they have to make, whether as to disclosure or as to compromise or any of those examples. They have to be able to deal with the whole of what might be complex litigation. And that follows from the case of Bailey and Warren, which I understand, Howard, is one of your own cases. Yes, it is. This was probably the first time I, I, I crossed swords with this, about almost 20 years ago. In, in that case, I managed to persuade a high court judge that capacity being issue specific w was such that where somebody had capacity to deal with liability in a road traffic accident, that was sufficient, but the Court of Appeal disagreed and said that, no, that's not true. If there's an agreement relating to liability, even though the litigant had capacity to deal with liability, it still wasn't sufficient. The litigant had to have capacity to deal with quantum as well. And so an agreement to compromise a case on a 50-50 basis would have been set aside were it not for the fact that the Court of Appeal decided to expose facto validate it. Also what's very important in terms of considering these cases is the professional duty which is upon any of the representatives 
And so if there is any reasonable doubt about the capacity of your client or the person that you're representing and their ability to give proper instructions, then it is your professional duty to satisfy yourself that the client does have the capacity to give instructions. Yeah, th- th- this is as important as, as anything that's going to be said in this po- podcast because everybody has to fulfil their professional duties and the SRA code of conduct is very clear and it's, it is your professional duty to satisfy yourself whether the, cl- the, the client has capacity to give instructions. It's not only in the code of conduct, it's also in a case called RP versus Nottingham City Council as well. And we always come across cases where we find that the instructions are being taken from a third party, whether or not it be the the client's husband or wife. And that's obviously a situation that we need to be alert to and where we need to be considering, does the actual client have litigation capacity? Yeah, I I come across this in practice a couple of times a year, I I would say. So the, the papers come to me and I, I look at it and I see that the instructions seem to have been taken from a partner or from a father or from a daughter or something of that nature. And it tends to make me suspicious that perhaps the client won't have lit- litigation capacity. And, and basically what tends to happen is I say, have you considered whether the client has litigation capacity? And, and the first reaction is, oh, well, well, of course they've got litigation capacity. And then I say, well, why, why do you always take instructions from the wife or son or daughter or whatever? Well, it's because they're not very good at, at, at speaking about things. And so I say, well, why aren't they very good at speaking about things? And almost inevitably, not inevitably, but almost inevitably, the, the, it turns out that, that they don't have litigation capacity. So I think you have to be very careful about this. And clearly it's something of the highest significance given that this is a professional duty upon litigators. And also, I suppose a, a key point is that the kind of cases where we would find this, obviously we'd probably be expecting this in cases where we're dealing with brain injury, which is well set out and known about, but there's a whole plethora of other kinds of cases where where this does arise and sometimes when people are not ready for it. So there are cases where the client has severe learning disability, cases where the client may have dementia, cases where the client may have serious psychiatric problems, cases where the client has serious communication problems. And so it's not just in clinical negligence or personal injury cases. It's the whole gamut of cases. And then returning to our practical guide as to the steps to be taken, one of the very important aspects of this is expert evidence. Obviously, when we've got a brain injury case, we would be hoping and expecting that the expert could deal with capacity within their reporting. If we had a case where it isn't going to be dealt with with the, the experts that we wish to instruct on liability and quantum, what should we be? looking to do and which experts should we be instructing? Well, a psychiatrist or, or a neuropsychologist is best. Again, time and again, I've seen reports 
from, let's say, a neurologist, and the suggestion is, well, the, the, the neurologist hasn't said that the client doesn't have capacity. But it's not a neurologist's role to decide whether the person has capacity. And I, I would guess that many neurologists have no real grasp of the Mental Capacity Act as it affects litigation. I mean, they may have some grasp of the Mental Capacity Act in relation to consent to treatment, but, but that's different. And when we're instructing an expert, there's then the need to actually tell the client that you are getting an assessment. Um, you have to set out to them as to the concerns that you have, that you have concerns about capacity, what the purpose of the assessment will be, and then the implications if they were to be found not to have capacity. And these are very complex and difficult situations, and there can then be a circumstance where the client objects to an assessment. So what then are the steps that should be taken practically? Well, you, you have to have consent. That's in the Law Society guidance. And if the client won't give consent, then there's guidance from the Law Society as well. And that says if they refuse, then you'll need to decide whether you wish to rely on your own opinion of their capacity. You must explain to your client in writing that you're unable to act for them or continue to act without a report if you think that they are likely not to have litigation capacity. And you must also explain the potential legal consequences, such as a subsequent challenge and the transaction being set aside by a court. It's an extremely difficult uh, situation, and this is clearly not an easy area of practice. Are you able to give examples of other difficult cases that you have come across? Yes, th this, is, this is from an ongoing case that, that I have. Uh, I'll give you a quote from a neuropsychologist report about my client. Um, but I have taken out anything from it that might identify the client. So this is what it says. His physical difficulties, cognitive limitations, and emotional liability, including high levels of anxiety, mean that XX will require special measures being put into place to enable him to give evidence, including giving evidence via remote link and being supported by, and I quote, an advocate and or intermediary. Although XX has litigation capacity, he will also require the support of an advocate during any official meetings. Now, many of you will not know what an advocate is in this context. What is the guidance available about how to get an advocate? There is NHS uh, guidance in a document called Someone to Speak Up for You, brackets, advocate. There's also guidance on, on the web about how to get an advocate. For instance, if the, the client is very elderly, then uh, Age UK will help. But there, there are other um, organisations who may help on the web as well. I mean, this is not something 
that solicitors or barristers come across very often. But when, but when you, you have a client who might be on the borderline, this is the kind of thing that you will have to do. And those links are obviously essential, and we'll put those links with the podcast notes on the website. Another practical consideration is what happens if a CFA has been entered into and then it transpires that the client does not have capacity. So what's your view, Howard, as to what steps should be taken at the point then of realising that the person who has entered into the CFA probably did not have the capacity to do so? Firstly, I'm not a cost expert. Secondly, like, like many of you, I, I read Kerry Underwood's blog. And Kerry has written a very good blog this year entitled Mental Capacity and Retainers and Conditional Fee Agreements, Problem Solved. So Kerry suggests that at worst, a CFA with a person without litigation capacity is voidable rather than void. Now, I'm not a costs expert, but common sense dictates that you should have a CFA with a potential litigation friend and the client on a joint and several basis. And from experience of past cases, I do think that a CFA can be made to cover work retrospectively. So it is always worth bearing in mind that a situation might be salvageable on that basis. And I suppose by engaging with the litigation friend, that is a situation which, which could be saved where it's dealing with the past work which has been done on a case and where a CFA has been made with someone who did not have the capacity to do so. But obviously, that does sound very helpful in terms of referring to, to Kerry Underwood's blog. And off, oh, I think in this kind of situation where we are dealing with the status of the litigation friend within proceedings, it will be important to get specialist costs advice in relation to that. If we then return to our step-by-step guide, if we've established that a person lacks capacity, then who should we seek to appoint as a litigation friend? Who who you have as a litigation friend usually depends upon who the client would would want to be the litigation friend. I mean, obviously, if, if you've got a, a client who, who, who is unconscious, they can't express wishes. But generally, if you, ha- if you have a, a client who doesn't have capacity, they will be able to nominate someone as a litigation friend. And the litigation friend will usually accept the office of, of, of litigation friend. But it can be, therefore, a member of a family that's more usual. Sometimes it, it's, it's an, a, a friend. And as a last resort, it can be the official solicitor. There is probably a tendency, isn't there, to look to the family first of all. Do you have many cases where it's the friend who does become the litigation friend? No, it's almost inevitably the family, but it just doesn't have to be. It's quite complex getting the official solicitor to come in but at the end of the day if nobody will do it then the the official solicitor can't really refuse and another issue which often comes up in these cases and which is important to understand is the difference between financial capacity and litigation 
capacity. Yes, that's that's really important. It's quite possible for somebody to have litigation capacity, but not have financial capacity. And so in other words, if somebody is on the borderline and can just about manage to cope with, let's say, quite simple litigation, it doesn't mean that you can't make, as part of your schedule of special damage, a claim for deputyship costs if the amount of money is sufficient to, to mean that the Court of Protection has to be involved. So litigation capacity is definitely not the same as financial capacity. And it could be vice versa as well. I've certainly been in cases where somebody has been said not to have litigation capacity, but, but is likely to have financial capacity. Frankly, I, I didn't understand the reasoning in that case, I would have to say. But that was the evidence that, that, that had come from the doctors. And there's often an interplay also with the Court of Protection, which can make proceedings very complicated. Presumably you've had a lot of experience of, of that kind of situation. Oh, abs- absolutely. The, the, the role of the deputy in, in the Court of Protection and the role of, of litigation friend are really quite different. So you, you can have a situation whereby the, the litigation friend and, and the deputy are, are different people. Or you can have a, a situation where, which is more common, where they're both the same person. It's it's very important to to realise that that these are, if you like, intersecting circles. And litigation friend has powers that a deputy doesn't, and the deputy has many more powers than than a litigation friend has. And part and parcel of these types of cases are what can be very large claims for court of protection and deputyship costs, and that applies irrespective of whether or not the defendant has actually caused the, the incapacity, or I suppose it's a, that's an issue for the proceedings, isn't it, as to whether or not they have caused it, or what, how would you deal with that, Howard? It's all very simple. If the defendants cause the incapacity, then the defendant has to pay for the deputy going forward. But if the defendant has not caused the incapacity, the defendant still has to pay for the deputy going forward. And the, the reason is, is simple. The, usually the client would not have needed a deputy because the client wouldn't have had sufficient money absent the accident or the, or, or the clinical negligence to need a deputy. It's only once the person has a large sum in damages that that person then needs a deputy. And so it's very important to understand that even in a claim that's not worth millions, the, the, there's an entitlement to court of protection deputyship costs, even if it's the defendant who has not caused the incapacity. So in our practical step-by-step case, we have a party that lacks litigation capacity. We've then had a litigation friend appointed. And what we then have to look at is a possible settlement to the claim. And to consider that, we look at CPR Part 2110. 
And what's important there is to bear in mind that this could include a compromise or a voluntary interim payment. And so, Howard, obviously that's a something that sometimes the mistake is made in terms of interim payment, but it's 2110 that we look to when we're reaching the point of compromise. Yes, th- this, is, this is very important. I- I'd like to emphasise the voluntary I- interim payment part because, again, time and again, voluntary interim payments are made without being approved by the court and, and they're invalid. So th- what happens is that the money is paid no proper discharge, therefore, can be given to the insurer or to NHSR. The money is, is often then passed on from the solicitor to the client. If the money is dissipated, particularly if there's no approval, they could be come back against all manner of different parties. So it, it's not a good position to be in. And I suppose what's also a related point to that is what happens if a claim has been settled, the whole claim could have been settled by a party who didn't have capacity. Yeah, well, this, this is much more important. And this has been quite a large part of my practice over the years. Because what happens is, if you settle a claim on behalf of a claimant who didn't have capacity and there was no approval, then you really must notify your insurers because you are in big trouble. I spoke on solicitors' negligence claims in these circumstances at a National Professional Negligence Law Association conference last year. And if you'd like a copy of my talk entitled An Otherwise Intractable Situation, The Conundrum of Incapacity and Solicitor's Negligence Claims, you can contact me on howard.elgott at parklaneplowden.co.uk. And a major recent case in this area is Evans and Batesh, which is another major case, Howard, which you've been involved in and which was in the Court of Appeal in 2022. And that's quite a, I suppose, a classic situation where advice had been given to Miss Evans as to the suitability of an offer, which in that case, it was a Part 36 offer at £100,000. Her barrister and solicitor hadn't advised for acceptance of the offer, but she'd given instructions to accept it. But then subsequently, when she went to new solicitors, it was identified that she didn't have capacity to actually accept that Part 36 offer. Yes, it was many years later when she consulted the new solicitors. The new solicitors sought new medical evidence, and the new medical evidence was to the effect that she'd suffered a traumatic brain injury and probably didn't have litigation capacity at any time following the accident. And so in those circumstances, the claim had been very substantially undersettled at the figure of £100,000 from the Part 36. And so what steps then did the new solicitors take? Well, they issued proceedings in professional negligence against the Batesh partnership and also against the the barrister who the Batesh partnership had instructed. But they didn't institute proceedings against the, the negligent motorist. And so what were the defendant arguments then that were raised against Miss Evans' claim? Well, I, I was acting for the, for the solicitors and I argued and the barrister acting on behalf of the barrister in the case argued that the standard practice in these claims is for the claimant to pursue the original tort visa first. That was done in Bailey and Warren. It was done in Dunhill and Bergen. And we said that until that had been done, you couldn't bring solicitor's negligence proceedings because it was impossible to quantify the loss. And so what was the decision then that was made within the Court of Appeal? 
Well, it was accepted in the Court of Appeal in Evans that there was no previous case, reported or otherwise, that was known to any of the parties or the court where a claimant who alleged that he or she didn't have litigation capacity at the date of a settlement had chosen to issue proceedings against his legal advisers. But somewhat surprisingly, the master of the roles described the failure to join the negligent motorist as, quote, an otherwise intractable situation. Now, I had always assumed that the job description of the master of the roles involved the, the master of the roles resolving intractable situations rather than, rather than doing the, the, the amount of hand-wringing that he did. But what was then the, the outcome to that claim? Well, what happened was that on the second day of the hearing, sufficient pressure was put on all three parties to resolve the matter by, by way of compromise. Amazingly enough, after we had succumbed to the pressure that, that had been exerted, the, the master of the role said, this is a very interesting situation. And so notwithstanding the compromise, I, I'd like to continue to hear full argument. And so I spent three quarters of an hour going through the argument I would have put had we not compromised. The, the Court of Appeal listened and then they gave a reserve judgment but, but unfortunately, reserved judgment in which the, the master of the role said that it was a, a, an otherwise intractable situation. So the truth is, nobody really knows, as of this minute, whether it is appropriate to sue the solicitors first or not. But probably the cautious approach would be to pursue the, as it were, the defendant motorist as it was in Evans as the first defendant. Or would it be worthwhile to, to bring and stay claims against other potential defendants? Well, in, in some of the cases I've been in, the claimant has sued everybody in sight. And most of these cases, uh, in fact, all of them, apart from Bailey and Warren and Evans and Batesh, uh, have actually been resolved either by roundtable or a mediation or something of that nature. And another situation which often arises is, uh, and, a, and a question is whether or not it can be a defence uh, to undersettlement of a claim that there's been an approval. And, and quite firmly, the, the answer to that is no, that the court approval is obviously based on the evidence provided. And that doesn't allow, a, if you like, a get out from, from a professional negligence claim. Oh, that's, abs that's absolutely true. The, the 2003 White Book at 21.10.2 says the opposite and indeed cites Evans and Batesh as authority for that. The problem is that it was wrong. And the first supplement of 2023 White Book corrects that error. And another very useful authority to have in your armory is the case of Coles and Perfect from 2013 uh, in relation to whether or not the court can be prepared to approve a, a settlement, even if no one is sure as to the claimant having litigation capacity or not? Oh, this is a really important case. When in doubt, then you really ought to apply for an approval because there's no point in being in doubt and getting it wrong because there are lots of firms out there who are happy to sue you if you do get it wrong, at least if you've got an approval then it's going to be much more difficult for you to be sued. 
Well, thank you. That's very valuable guidance. And hopefully what we've set out today within the podcast is going to be a great aid to practice and obviously to raise these very fascinating and important issues. I suppose, Howard, that the case of Evans, given that there are what's been described by the Master of the Rules as an intractable situation, that this is a, an area where you would expect there to be further case law in the future. Well, it is. I think it's very important, obviously, because firstly, it shows not only that you might be sued, but secondly, it shows that you might be sued and litigation might last for years and years and years if you are sued because of these matters which are, which are still to be resolved. And who knows, if you get it wrong, you might end up in the Supreme Court. These are fascinating issues and it has been wonderful to discuss these matters with you, Howard. Thank you so much. Have you enjoyed your first podcast recording? Yes, I've enjoyed it very much. And our next PLP podcast will see the return of Leila Ben-Yunis and she will be speaking to the Deputy Chief Coroner Derek Winter and hopefully another very special guest. Watch this space. All our PLP podcasts, including those by Leila and Derek Winter, are still available on the Park Lane Plowden website. I look forward to joining you again soon, I hope, for another PLP podcast. Thank you.